0: Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability. This is a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. And I'm your host, Gary Turner. I'm also the founder of HexoChange. And HexoChange is a transformational change practice dedicated to helping you connect yourself to others and to systems at large in a more meaningful way, thus helping us turn around our workplace and planetary challenges and accelerating how alive we all feel in every aspect of our lives. This track is called Kaleidoscope and was created for me personally and for HexoChange by Peter Griffiths, one half of the amazing Mind Takeaway. I hope you enjoy this exploration and please do share it on your social platforms so we can bring more humanity to more people. Hope to speak to you soon. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability. This is a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. And today I am very grateful to bring you John Featherby, who is the founder of Shoremount and also one of the founding B Corp members in the UK. And I'm really, really grateful to have you on the show today, John. Thanks for joining me. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, look, I'd really love, if you wouldn't mind starting for myself and the listeners today, just to give a bit more background as to you know, who is John and what's why are you so passionate about the B Corps movement? Could be a really nice place to start.
1: Who is John? That's a big question. Um, <laughs> I guess a primary husband and father. So I uh, have four kids, 12, 10, 8 and 6, three sons and a daughter. Um, uh, been married, well, been with my now wife nearly 20 years, married Fifteen or something. Um, uh, I live in Hearts, but spend as much time as I can in the countryside. That's where I get most of my peace and my thinking. And I just, yeah, feel connected when I'm in natural landscapes. I guess um, my professional background—it's uh, a bit of a family story, really. I started life in a home where my parents were very serious about the role of business in society. Mm -hmm. Um, my father was a corporate lawyer, but we spent a lot of time thinking and talking around what is the role of business. Um, the, the, the version we have of enterprise and capitalism needs some rethinking. Um, and so I was sort of soaked in the sort of theology and philosophy of work from quite a young age. Um, I just got lucky really uh you know compared to a lot of people in terms of their introduction or awakening around some of these issues that it was it was a kind of slow growth from you know as far back as i can remember really And by the time i started work in the city um i could i wouldn't have, i certainly didn't predict the financial crash for so to speak but i certainly saw coming what we're all doing now this discussion around you know the reawakening of people at work and what is what is business's role in society and what are the other different spheres of society up to and how they connect to one another um, sustainability being the thin end of what was you know a very big wedge and yeah so I've just spent I've spent 10 years exploring myself um, having left the city well, what does all this mean where is it going and how do I use I guess the gifts I've been given not necessarily in terms of my personal skills, but just, you know, the, the people I know, the the system I was born into and uh, how do I use that for the greater good?
0: It's it's so amazing. It's really unusual, actually, from, from the sort of, the first 90 or so conversations, John, I've had on this podcast. It's very rare if ever someone's had that clarity from a younger age to have that conversation, that bigger system conversation. Yeah. It's really fascinating.
1: Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, I... Yeah, I mean, obviously, I didn't create that. I mean, I guess I could have walked away from it, but um, I remember quite clearly, you know, two or three quite key moments when I was younger thinking, this is what I feel called to be involved with, and this is, you know, what I want to dedicate my life to being part of, and uh, not really knowing what does that mean, where does that go, still working that out, you know, it might look good on the CV, but, you know, it's always changing, and and the markets changing very quickly. And so, um, you know, is that in-house out of house, you know, there's these questions, all of us engage with at some point or other. Um, so yeah, I had, I did have some clarity, young, um, but it wasn't easy either, you know, growing up around that and certainly even for most people involved in the space, even true now for the most part, whilst you have that clarity, that doesn't mean that there's a group of people willing to listen. So, You know, for a long time, it's been hard work. It's been uphill. It's uh, it's carried a price. Um, You know, people who are really committed to this often they find themselves in organisations that talk a good game, but you know, it's all a lot of hot air. Um, So there's only really there's been a marketplace, I guess, for classic sustainability consulting for a while. Um, But really, in terms of systemic deep profound change and rethinking about you know who are we and what are we trying to achieve here through work um that's yeah, still very much a work in progress um whatever you know whatever people tell you um so it's uh yeah so there's clarity but that doesn't mean it's also easy
0: i, th- I think that's a really important point actually i love that I mean, you know we, there's a lot of talk about purpose at the moment which i think is important you know we should have meaning etc at work but i think. Yeah, the sort of idea that once you have that clarity that it becomes easy is a bit of a misnomer. I think that's a really interesting thing you're speaking to.
1: Yeah, and when we talk about change, you know, change always begins with some kind of death. There's some kind of prices paid for change at the start. And uh, so taking that step, you know, might be somebody who has a moment of work and thinks I've got to do something else and it means leaving their job or um, giving up some part of the density of the story they'd been telling themselves about who they were and it, you know, starts to become something new. There's a letting go. And, you know, certainly in the UK we're not very good at those dialogues. Um, well, you know, and so, yeah, it's not, it's not easy and, and, it, and it can be a personal challenge as much as an organisational one.
0: Do you think, I think it's really interesting when you, when you sort of, you mentioned earlier that you felt at a young age, that you were moved to work in the environments that you've worked in. And I think that's really interesting for me, because that feeling part is something, so my own personal journey, John, was one of sort of emotional suppression for 20 years after being bullied as a kid. Now, whilst I didn't have to do that, but back to your point about stories, so like, do we actually check in with ourselves enough to the stories that we are telling ourselves, or do we just believe them like infinitum, sort of consciousness versus unconscious almost in a way, isn't it?
1: yeah and uh you tell yourself a story about yourself enough and you start to believe it um whether or not it actually happened um and one of the dangers of you know thinking about how who am I and how did I get here is that it can be too it can be too predicated on i perfected a story about how I reached here you know the narrative I gave you at the beginning you know is is often a narrative I give to other people and um when you've when you've when you've given these stories enough times and you've honed the story enough times, it can start to turn into a pitch or a, or you can start to re-remember things that happened that didn't um and lose a focus on well, how what who am I now what am I presently connected to and where am i going is is more important than than you know where have I been and what has been lost and gained along the way um, so yeah, stories are really powerful in terms of forging an identity, but Not if it's at the cost of you know productive discussion about the future
0: Yeah, I love, love that. That's, that's really powerful John. Tell, tell us a little bit about the work you do at Shoremount And I really I'd love you to expand on how actually the name came about and obviously I I know from From researching you, but I think it's a really lovely way that you're uh, you've come into being with the, with your business.
1: Well, like all businesses uh, what used to be the case you when you started business you, you you worried about you know what company name was was logged at company's house and did somebody else already have it and then it became a question of well, does the year has the url been stolen already um you know you could have your company called anything now it's more about what what's the what's the web link um and so i was sat down trying to work through well, what do i call what i'm up to um because originally when i Left the city to start work in this space. I'm my so my professional training originally was in kind of real estate, so property investment, um, development advisory work, and wanted to spend time in that space. Um, so it was connected to the land and buildings, and that was a, my original professional expertise. And so some of this thinking to start with was being played out in in how do we how are we engaged with Um, sense of place and the land and you know where where we live and work um, and stewardship in that context and I just wrote down a whole list of um, words that we're familiar with around the land whether you know lake and pond and hill and uh, and I just then started jumbling them up and seashore and mountain were two words so shore and mountain became a kind of it was a sort of portmanteau of those two words shore mount is um so connecting from you know from the seashore to the mountain top um but it's become i guess i also just like the just like the word it sounded like the sort of word that might look interesting on the side of a building <laughs> um and yeah but i guess at sort a of bigger picture it, it for me obviously that covers everything you know from sea level to mountain top you know we're all in between one or two of those things um so that you know that's where the word's where the word came from and i think it's really important to maintain a some kind of spiritual or philosophical connection to the land a lot of this thinking a lot of thinking around organizations and corporates and things are great but they often get done in a building in a city and someone somewhere else in the company might be thinking about some environmental issue but people aren't actually putting their hands on the soil and I th- I think maintaining human connection to the natural world, um, however basic that might be, is really important for this transition. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't come up with really good strategies and thinking without ever having engaged on a personal level, I don't think, with some kind of natural connection. Um, otherwise, it becomes too much of a project, too much something that exists on paper, and it's not real enough. Um so yeah, so I, I like the name because it sort of keeps me reminded about that because it would, otherwise it'd be easy to spend all your time in the city and not in the field.
0: So, so so when you speak about this sort of connection, you're talking human to human and human to nature, sort of both angles there, John, or
1: yeah, both and Oh yeah, absolutely. So I mean, my uh, I mean, I'm from a long line of farming types, um, and uh, it's still very much connected to the land in that way, and I. So I think it's important and obviously the environmental issues I think are, are very important and being a B Corp and being part of that movement, you know, I'm as good, I'm as committed to environmental, you know, positive environmental change um, as all the, everyone else in that space, but you have to pick an area as well. And uh, f- for me, it's the people, uh, you know, change the people, change the planet rather than the other way around. And you know, because ultimately this is a heart question. This is a question of the heart rather than it's a question of a policy about recycling. Um so uh I just I, I've 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 always been drawn to people, I love people, I enjoy relationships, um and but I think you can't do that disconnected from the land all the time. Um, you know, there's things like the nature deficit disorder and and people spending too much time in supermarkets and in, you know, in concrete jungles, you know, that, that's, um, ultimately that's, you lose part of your identity. And I think it's important for this dialogue to be about humans, to be connected to the environmental question. Um, and I don't just mean reading statistics about climate change. I mean, spending time in the woods. Um, and most of the people I know who are good at this have gone and spent time outside doing something. Um, intentionally or otherwise and I, and I don't mean people who have to be going you know if people are finding it difficult to get access to green spaces that they have to be doing it every day but I just think it has to be part of the discussion and um, part of the movement and you know what you spend time near and around and in, you value
0: it's, it's so true I, I, that comment always makes me think of you know you become the average of the five people you spend the most time with it's the same sort of Thing if you, if you 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 do become what you spend your time doing,
1: yeah. <laughs> Fundamentally, yeah. yeah. You and uh yeah, what you think about and what you read and what you let in and what you tell yourself about yourself. Yeah, all these things are true.
0: So, what what is it about you, like Shaw Mount, being a B Corp or the B Corp movement in and of itself? What what is it that inspires you about that, personally?
1: Uh, well, I mean, so back before the B Corp movement launched in the UK, obviously it was already present in the U S and, um, I knew some of the people involved and it what it obviously wasn't what it is now. No one really knew what it was. And part of what I've, you know, and the people I'm involved with been doing for sort of 10 years or so, it's just as often just been about showing up, being willing to be in the room, lend yourself to the conversation. Um, contribute some thinking, make the right connections, you know, as much as it is doing kind of paid work per se. Um, because, you know, it's only by being willing to give your time and your name and your energy something to things move forward. And uh, I so I knew it was coming and I knew that they were going to launch it. And I just thought, well, if it goes somewhere or not, you know, it's something to, it can't help having another name on the team sheet. Um, it's something to be part of and the more people that we can kick it off with, perhaps the more energy it might have and, you know, who knows where it will go. So it was, it was really as simple as that. And obviously um, was already thinking and behaving in a B Corp type way. So it wasn't enormously difficult um, to to become one. Um, and so it was as simple as that and off we went. And then, you know, it's gone from strength to strength really since then. And particularly in the last, I my experience in the last kind of 12, 18 months, it's really taken off. So you had to explain what it was to people 18 months ago, and now um, that's, that's increasingly rare.
0: That's exciting. That's a really exciting sort of reference point for me, John, because that's something I wanted to explore with you was, what is the appetite? So although it's, so the awareness is clearly up, the consciousness of organizations, they're aware of B Corps as a concept, as a thing. Yeah. What's, where would you say the willingness is so the sort of the awareness is one thing but the willingness to act is another do you see that also increasing at a similar level to the awareness
1: uh, willingness to act in what way
0: uh, what i mean is you can be aware of b corps as a as you know as a way of being as an organization but to actually step into becoming a b corp i guess there's a lag between the awareness and, and, and the becoming and i was just wondering what does that lag look like
1: um, I mean it depends on um you know different people come to it for different reasons, and uh you know all of them are valid um you know some people come to it because they feel morally obliged to be you know not to be a B Corp cop but, but to be that way and they think it's the best way of proving to everyone else that they are other people come because they think it will attract investment and statistics around performance and employee engagement and all those sorts of things look good um you know, it's, it's a, there's a range of reasons why people come and we, and we, and we need them all um, and you all help one another. And, yeah. I mean, I don't, it's difficult to know how, I don't know how often, how long it tends to take people from knowing about it to put it in the trigger. But, I mean, it's obvious, there's often, there is often a delay as people work out, t- particularly if, obviously, the larger they are, the longer it takes because they have to work out you know, and certainly, um, it's easier if a company is privately owned. Um, but it is—it is work. It does take time. It does require some commitment. And it's not—you know—you—it's not necessarily easy to get through. Um, but that's part of the point. Um, but it's—but it's designed in such a way to be helpful rather than prohibitive. The idea is not just to kind of create an exclusive group of companies who can brand themselves as B Corp, The idea is to. Uh, design a change movement that helps pull people along is authentic and is challenging and helps everyone to to sort of keep moving forward whether they're you know me or the Patagonians of the world um so it's like you know it's open and and what's one of being one of the main changes I would say has been the number of people who aren't b corps but are using the b impact assessment or spending time around b corps to learn and change and think so they might never become a b corp but they want to be involved and connected and engage with it
0: that's it it really what comes up for me is that the sense of community around the movement seems to be very strong
1: yeah um yeah, people are passionate. I mean, I think it's. I mean, I, I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm a passionate B Corp,er uh, and I love the movement and I think it's doing wonderful things. But it's not going to save the world by itself.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Are we still on here? Yep. Um, you can still hear me, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, it's not. It's not. I don't think it's going to. Yeah, I don't think it's going to save the world by itself. That's not to say that it's not doing good things is doing great things, but, um, you know, we need more, more, more than B Corp is necessary to move the system. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's got energy. It's, it's, it's a brand that people want to get behind It's a brand that, uh, employees like becoming part of, you know, it's not uncommon for me to talk to somebody who is going B Corp and when they tell, it, tell their employees, there's loads of excitement about it. Um, so, you know, it's, People are hearing about it outside of the bubble that is, you know, the kind of sustainable business, familiar sustainable business companies. Um, So, yeah, it's certainly a lot of commitment, And you need to be committed to make it work. It's like I said, you know, it's not not just and it's forever done. You know, you have to recertify, you have to do some regular yearly thinking. And, yeah, it's an ongoing commitment. But then um, being excellent is, I guess.
0: No, awesome. I'd love to come back a bit to so you mentioned you set up a number of years ago and you left the city, um, John. What, what was the trigger for you to sort of set up on your own and leave the city? You know, what was going on for you at that point in time?
1: Um, I, I, as I said, I, could, I saw all this coming and things like financial crises are a moment where people stop and start navel gazing and that's exactly what happened um i remember you know after the crash kicked off and you know i mean this is just a headline thought it's not empirical but you know the financial times for example may have had you know an article every blue moon on moral hazard or something and then after you know after Lehman's broke and all those sorts of things you know there's regular regular commentary on you know what is the role of business where is what is the sustainable movement going what's it speaking to until you know a couple of months ago we had the sort of front cover of the FT which is all about you know changing capitalism um so I I felt like that was a potential pivot a turning point and that it takes something like that unfortunately for people to stop and think oh what we thought was working isn't um we've still got, you know, an awful lot hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. Um I think it's also important to stay positive. An awful lot has. I mean, you know, now if you go on LinkedIn, there's thousands of people with jobs in response to investment or stewardship or B Corps or you know, you know, human this and whatever. That just didn't exist in 2010. Um so uh I I the timing, I think it was partly the timing. Um I wanted I wanted to change. I could see that where, where I was involved, um I needed to kind of broaden the number of organizations I was engaging with to stay enthusiastic, to stay connected. You know, it's it's it, it was isolating. It still is. I mean one of the one of the big jobs well, a lot of time we spend doing is connecting people in different organizations who feel very isolated, who are trying to make sense of what's going on um and want to contribute but feel surrounded by it's generally not bad individuals, it's just bad institutions. And you I very you know almost never come across somebody who doesn't care. It's just that groupthink in certain institutions takes over and it behaves differently to how the individuals would if you asked them by themselves. Um so yeah I I um took the opportunity in 2010 to leave and Get started, and as I said, I, um, I had some head start in terms of I could see the thinking. Um, I knew nothing of, I knew nothing much about sustainability. I'm not saying I knew, I understood carbon or water, or, which is all it really was. That I could see back then. Um, it was more about the philosophy of business and the purpose of enterprise that I was interested in. And what's the, what's the people question? How do people really thrive? What does it mean? To be a human being, and go to work. Um, we talk about our purpose being to restore joy, meaning, and freedom to the workplace, and you know those are questions that I didn't, I didn't have that articulated in my head back then. But that those are the questions I was trying to trying to pursue. Um, so yeah,
0: yeah, I, I really love that, and you spoke earlier as well about you know the importance you know heart you know, and it, I feel like the journey that a lot of us are on is that actually the head's important. You no know, intelligence is important but as is those messages that we get from within our body as well so it's actually how do we actually feel our heart and our head rather than just living on top of our shoulders which is certainly what i did for many years
1: <laughs> yeah no absolutely um you know it's, and there's a difference as well between our you know our heart and our spirit and our soul and you know, all these questions i mean this is this whether this is where the measurement discussion falls down and gets difficult because if you think of the human body as you've just referred to the heart and the head, you know, it's easy to measure, um, you know, how many fingers you have, you know, what color are your eyes? You know, th- this is how organizations are functioned. They, they measure and engage with the physical stuff that's easy to see, um, the skeleton, the muscular system of an organization, but actually, you know, you and I, we're so much more than just the physical representation of ourselves and actually the person behind the skeletal system you know who you are, your stories, your soul, your sense of heart, what you care about, um why you got up this morning to do what you do, what drives you, you know, that those are really big matter um but then you know you you can't look at a person to measure those um and so you can you can't just apply to those questions about human being around their, you know, the questions of their soul, the methodologies and thinking that you apply to the skeletal system. Um, and so this, this is what organizations are going through. They've, they've, they've only ever focused on the structure and the body, um, in a physical sense. And now they're starting to grapple with the, the more ethereal bit and you can't apply the same thinking and expect it to work. So the yeah, the body is a good metaphor. Um, and you know, it's an organization, just a collection of human beings as well.
0: Uh, I really love that body metaphor. I may actually steal that, John. Thank you very much. Uh, Go for it. <laughs> no, but, but, but it's a really, really beautiful metaphor. And it, it makes me think um, I love on your, you know, on your website, you've got these different approach models. And something I've been speaking about for about 12 months now is I get really. And it's only me, but I get frustrated at the sort of what's the problem to solve rather than what's the opportunity to realize. You know, can we be better? For example, my work organization is highly profitable, it has been for many years. It has a strong business model, but just because it's making money doesn't mean it's healthy. And I think it's that. How do we make sure that we stay healthy even when we are successful?
1: Yeah, yeah. This is the kind of shift from problems to possibilities. So um it's, and you know, as a consultant, this is this is one of the big problems that one of the big shifts that the consulting industry has to make. And the same thing with corporations when they look internally is all the thinking tends to be very problem focused, very inward. Um, it tends to have quite a negative connotation. What do we fix that's already broken? Um, but that's not a healthy way. I mean, it has its place. I'm not saying it needs to disappear it will always problem solving and fixing things is always, always has its place. The problem is it's totally dominated the way we think about change. And the reality of the problem solving is it can only iterate the current reality. You can't, you can't launch yourself into a new reality by just fixing what's current. Uh, You have to create something new and that's not a problem solving process. That's a process of thinking about new possibilities and who do we want to be and, what stories do we want to be telling and where do we want to go? Um, and it's, yeah, it's not a, and it's it's like approach to people, you know, the approach to people and organizations are always taken, you know, how do we fix some rules all the time rather than work with who they are? Um, yeah, so opportunity seeking, and, and that then encourages an organization to look outwards, which is a more purpose-driven way of behaving, you know, how going after your purpose is an outward looking, servant-hearted way of going about the world Uh, it's not inward looking you know how do we allocate resources to fixing problems internally which are focused on questions of efficiency or something um then they're you know important just like to use the body metaphor, for a diet but that doesn't answer the question around you know corporate purpose
0: I also love one or other. I'd love to touch on another approach of yours. You know, you you've sort of bought me into the store, the store sorry, the shore mount model already. I love it. You speak about moving from expert to guide. Do you mind speaking about that a bit, John? Uh,
1: yeah, similar thing. It's uh, we. Well, if you think it's ever since you were a child, all of us, um, we have basically been told that somebody else has the answer. Mm-hmm. So your teacher has the answer you know you're answering questions somebody already has an answer to. they just want to check you know what they know and then you go to university it's the same thing you start a job your boss has the answer you know you're learning what somebody else knows there's always been we've always been told that we're in somehow insufficient that um if only we knew that other thing if only we had done that other course that we would know what we need to know to to move forward um and in an organisation, in you know, or from in terms of how corporates move around and change and pursue pursue questions they need to deal with, they have approached it in a similar way. And this often becomes this. To use an example, you know, if, if companies historically, when they've been slower moving and more technical, for example, so when the economy was more based around an industrial model. There were actual things that had need technical fixes that required an expert to understand, you know, how does that machine work, for example? You know, what how do we relay relay a um uh you know this or that um circuit board? But now organizations are moving into a space where the The questions are much more about people, they're much more about relationship, about accountability and how we work together and collaborate. And where does innovation come from? And what does being enterprising mean? And um how fast can we respond? Um, those are less technical questions and more human more human ones. And we we already have a lot of the what we need to deal with those. Um so we've got I mean, we've got a number of different ways that expert is moving to guide. First of all, expertise is a dying thing if you think that the economy is changing so fast. So if you were an expert in something 10 years ago, does not mean you're an expert in it now. Um, and, also, and and that, that time horizon is getting shorter and shorter. It also makes the assumption that other people's contribution won't help you reach a positive or more productive answer. And often you find that people who know nothing about what's going on can can provide real clarity and ask a really important question or bring some personal experience to a particular issue that is hugely, hugely beneficial. Um, but certainly from a consulting space, which is obviously where I'm involved, is what is allowed consultants to sell and certainly bosses within an organisation is this idea that if you don't have the expert in the room, you're in trouble and actually what's needed is organizations to instead look more to their people more to the resources they already have and think we can actually answer these questions we have the answers we need already internally we don't need somebody to come and tell us what to do necessarily what we probably need is someone to hold us accountable help us ask better questions create spaces that better spaces people can talk in um, help connect us to what's going on elsewhere. Um, but that's not a, that's not a provision of answers. That's sort of provision of dialogue. Um, and that's where I, that's how I see this, you know, this, this changing is this move away from needing experts all the time. to so needing people that who feel more like a guide. Um, and the reality as well is, you know, after 30, 40 years of, huge amount of ed- education and lots of people going through big consulting firms and going to corporates. They, all that thinking is now in house. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they, they have, they have enough of those tools already. They don't need more of them. Um, but they do need, you know, sometimes people do need some courage, some, um, some encouragement, rather some, uh, affirmation and, you know, some new ways to talk to one another and uh, very sadly, you know, most certainly large corporations, they have forgotten to, how to talk to one another. And, you know, you don't need, you just need a guide for these sorts of things rather than an expert. I mean, you could, we could talk about this all day, but, you know. And, enough, that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> and we will do. I'm
0: sure we'll do that again, John. <laughs> it's, it, it's such an important point. So give a, a real-life example for our listeners as well. So I still work in a corporate job, so I have an international sales role full-time. So my expert role is international sales manager. However, my value I bring like, like is internally is from a wide network of people that see organizations in different ways. So if I kept that to myself, they'd get the sales guy, but they wouldn't get any of the other value that I can bring. And it's only now that they're starting to wake up my organization to actually, oh, God, he knows all, he's got this network and other insight. Why not use that and have him as the sales guy?
1: Yeah, and the risk with these things as experts in roles is um, generally the more senior you become, the more detached you become from what the is the reality in the marketplace. So the person on the front line at the coalface who isn't seen as the expert often has their finger on the pulse, understands you know what is the cost downstream of this policy you've come up with, or the way we're presenting this opportunity, or how the customers are reacting to the product, um, and there are a lot more. So they are expertise- they are experts in their own way, but they're not thought of as experts um so the yeah the risk the same thing within with in-house the risk of you know seeing people in management positions as experts is yes they they have experience to bring um so I'm not in any way saying that the expert role is over that's not what I'm saying mm-hmm. but it we just we need to rethink you know what does what is the role of an expert and who is the expert? And I mean, the Greta Thunberg thing has been interesting for me, not so much because of what she's doing, but it, to me, it raises the question around society doesn't think children can contribute to new knowledge. You know, that's how the school system is set up. They're just taught stuff that we already know. They're not asked to solve problems, but what would, the system look like if every child in school was being asked to solve problems real problems that the adults are trying to deal with um you know that that creates a totally different society um so that's what i mean by who are the experts and um yeah. so yeah are the teachers the experts or the children
0: i i love that provocation i absolutely i think that's brilliant what a wonderful wonderful question
1: yeah and it's and it's, it's, a, it's a tragic waste of energy and enthusiasm and creative thinking. And, you know, it's the same thing, you know, in large companies, you know, you get some of the most educated people in the world coming out of, you know, MBAs or um, top universities and they go to certain firms and they get stuck in front of PowerPoint for three years and you just think, well, what are we doing with these people? You know, they, they have so much to give and, but they're just doing, they're being asked to be doing very basic jobs rather than contributing to something new. Um, you know, a lot of it is about preserving the status quo It's cause it's what we did 10 years ago. And well, you know, it's, it's not 2000 anymore. It's now 2020 and you know, we need to change how we think and work.
0: As we start to wrap up, John, what, what are a couple what's maybe one or two of the biggest barriers in your experience to if the shift isn't being made, you mentioned about the status quo being maintained. What are maybe one or two things that are getting in the way of that shift
1: um I mean this mindset of the status quo runs very deep, and we've touched on education and um, you know you are institutionalized to think a certain way by the time you are um well not just at work but certainly in a management position uh, um, and you know it's its runs very deep and you know you could put you could put you can put evidence in front of boards and people all day long that this is worthwhile the the question around whether does this make sense from an empirical perspective is the data there for performance you know, i mean to me that's long since i've been answered um, but they can still not do something um it becomes a question of you know do you are you willing to think that operating differently, behaving differently, allowing your people, setting them free more, rethinking how you, you know, structure the organisation and pursue accountability and what does governance mean. Um, it's a mindset thing and an emotional thing more than it is a rational one. So the the barriers are almost always personal in some way and more than 50, the one of the reasons this work is difficult is more than 50% of this work is personal and individual. It's it's somebody working on themselves. Um, to use a different metaphor, you know, if you, uh, if someone goes to a doctor and they're unwell and what they want is medication for the symptoms and the doctor's happy to give it, um, that's a, like a lot of contemporary consulting and change work. You know, it's how do we deal with the symptoms when the, what the patient needs to be told them is, you know, you need to overhaul your lifestyle. You need to get better sleep, change your diet, exercise more regularly, you know be a better friend Um, but that's harder and it it takes longer and it can be difficult and it requires commitment and you might need someone to walk alongside you and um, that's not to say the medication doesn't have a role as well but two and that's both necessary and that's so the barriers all exist around these sorts of questions commitment what price are you willing to pay how long are you willing to go after it Um, is this worthwhile doing regardless of what the outcome is um, which are all questions which we were answering before with you know the more kind of shareholder privacy model but we we think we're answering a different question we're not um which is answering it in a different way
0: it's it's so beautiful Charles. i just really love how you've been so strong throughout this conversation that actually so many of the answers for an organization sit within the people that are already there if we just create the space to let them let them catch up it's brilliant Yeah.
1: And 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 it's obvious really. I mean, you know, companies for a long sense, you know, people are our greatest asset and you know, I hate the term human resources and but um I mean they are and it's just companies just have to actually believe what they're saying. Um and I mean if it's not people, what is it, you know? Um it seems it seems it's I mean it's all very obvious on the surface, isn't it? Um but it's it's uh you know it's takes a lot of sweat, blood and tears to get there as well, unfortunately.
0: I just think as as a sort of final question I'd like to ask you, John, before we go, in the name of this podcast, I'm just wondering how important or not do you feel it is for this shift to happen for people for leaders to be vulnerable, to not have all the answers? Is that part of this journey for people?
1: The vulnerability question? Yes. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's huge. Um, you well i think there's two layers to that question the first of which is leaders are not going to solve this for us um i think leadership development as an industry uh has all kinds of problems that needs to re needs to deal with itself um and leaders looking to leadership to solve problems all the time is, is a flawed strategy um so they are important and they 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 uh Leaders can make a big difference um you know good or bad so I'm not saying leaders don't have i don't have a powerful a powerful role um but vulnerability if you're just waiting it f- it has to be modeled by everybody you create the environment that you're part of you know um you allow your boss to stay your boss because you show up and and enable it um you know we have to we have to ask that question of employees as much as they're there just because they have the title. Now I know it's, you know, that's maybe flippant and people feel they can't just leave their jobs. I'm not saying that, but that's an important part of the dialogue as well. So vulnerability works both ways. Um, the role of leaders in the vulnerability question is, you know, they have to model it too. Um, and they model it through the way they tell their stories, the information they provide. Um, it's not just, you know, telling stories about how difficult they're finding life. It's, what information are they going to share with their employees? You know, are they? You know, are this need to, to, to feel like they're saving everyone all the time? That's um, that's why everyone burns it out because it's not real. It's not realistic. Um, and through being vulnerable, you build better relationships. People trust you more. They they want to engage. And everybody is struggling with something. Um, that is universally true. And so, you know, being, being willing and able to share what's going on with other people, you know, invites people in to do the same. And yeah, a lot of problems happen in organisations because people won't talk about what's really going on. Um, and, the, you know, that's a vulnerability question.
0: Fantastic. John, how can people find you if they want to follow up with you, if they're interested to find out more about Shoremount or any of the work you're doing?
1: uh i'm john featherby at shawmant i'm on linkedin shawmant.com is on the website they can catch me through you um yeah it should be easy enough hopefully <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing something right
0: well i'll make sure all your contact details are on the show notes of this podcast john and thanks so much for your time and sharing your insights It's been really enjoyable
1: well i hope it's been useful and you've got out of me what you were hoping to um i'm sure i've Say a lot of things that other people do too. So, um, but repetition is helpful as well, I guess.
0: There's plenty in there. Trust me, John. Look forward to it. Thanks. Thanks. Look forward to chatting again. Take care. Bye bye.
1: Okay. All right. Goodbye.
0: Hello there. Just Gary Turner wrapping up this wonderful conversation with John Featherby. I really hope you took away. Um, from this discussion as much as I did and I'd just like to share a few more of those reflections with you in case it's helpful. Um, I really enjoyed hearing that John did have some clarity young with regards to his personal purpose uh, but I found it interesting that he said for the most part whilst you might have that clarity it doesn't mean that there is a group of people willing to listen and I think that's a that's a really really interesting point and it's, it reminds me of some of my difficulties um, being impulsive with senior leaders around the people and culture agenda you know i definitely had a a gift and ability to see further ahead um systemically of what's going on but the way i communicated that wasn't always the best way which means means people didn't always listen to me um i enjoyed john talking about the fact that when we talk about change it always starts with some sort kind of death some kind of price is paid for change at the start and I, i This podcast was recorded just around Christmas time, 2019, well before the the current COVID-19 challenges that we're all working through right now. And I just think, what what an incredible metaphor for where we are right now. Um, I've spoken for some time around the consciousness shift that is underway around us, you know, inverted commas, waking up to more connected, interdependent ways and, and ways of being versus just doing and i just think this statement this quote has so so much relevance right now i really also enjoyed hearing john talk about the fact that he says change the people change the planet rather than the other way around ultimately this is a heart question i so appreciate you john sharing this as you know i've had some wranglings in my own mind in in recent months you know do a lot of great work with uh, my good friend and, and others Mike Vacanti, around the human 's first movement, and sometimes that phrase can can be misinterpreted when we talk about humans first, as in that humans matter more than animals, society, you know the climate etc and that 's not the point, and i 've not been able to articulate it as well as John did, which the point is unless we as humans are awake, unless we are conscious. Of the choices we're making of the rampant you know hyper individualization and materialism that's causing so much of the damage right now until we actually acknowledge and own that part of our journey you know unless we can change ourselves it's difficult to change the bigger system around us because ultimately we're the ones that are causing the damage so i wonder if how that sits with you do you challenge that do you agree with that um a couple of other things as i wrap up this this lovely conversation is that John spoke about the fact that organisations measure and engage with the physical stuff. That's easy to see, but actually we are so much more than the physical representation of ourselves. And I really love how this speaks to the sort of the energetic sense of all of us, you know, the spiritual angle as well as the business angle. And of course, the the ongoing language challenges, you know, soft versus hard skills, etc., All of that fits within this paradigm. You know, organisations like to measure the inverted commas hard because it's easier to measure. Um, So, yeah, I wonder what's coming up for you with that one. Finally, I thought it was a helpful reflection where John speaks about the fact that most large corporations have forgotten how to talk to one another. And I think that's a really, really powerful reflection for all of us. And of course, when we talk about organisations or corporations, we're talking about us as individuals. You know, organisations are a collective of us human beings. So what can you do differently if you listen listening to this, these reflections? You know, how can you go about offering or gaining clarity? Um, how do you go about role modelling vulnerability, going first with not knowing or asking a curious question of someone that doesn't look like you? I hope these reflections have been helpful. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And thank you for joining me on this significant podcast of episode 99. And I'm really excited for you to join Mike Vacanti and I as we explore episode 100 next week. Um, A collaboration between he and I and hopefully you as well as we go forward. Until next time, you can find John's contact details in the show notes. You can find me, Gary, G-A-R-R-Y, TurnerZero at Hotmail.com. Gary Turner, Interpersonal Catalyst on LinkedIn and at Gary IP Catalyst on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us. Really hoping that you enjoyed that exploration on the Value Through Vulnerability podcast. You can find out much more about Hexo Change at hexochangenow.com. That's H-E-X-O-Change Now, one word, .com. You can subscribe to a weekly newsletter at that website, which includes information about live stream conversations, further service offerings, blogs, but also our in-person events of which we have multiple each year. So I really hope that you'll join us. Do connect with me, Gary Turner on LinkedIn, and I really hope to hear from you soon.